Psalm chapter 90. Okay, I'm just going to read. I'm just going to rip off this great psalm. Um, Really, really, really love this psalm. And I'm going to rip off the first six verses, and then I'll kind of start my sermon. But let me read the first part of it. Psalm chapter 90, starting in verse 1. It goes like this. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. Now, what we're doing is we're doing a series of of teachings called Wild, the Existence and Attributes of God. And the reason why I'm calling it Wild is because God cannot be domesticated or regulated. Uh, He can't be controlled. In other words, a life of transformation is, is not I'm trying to get God to do my agenda, but actually surrendering to the God who's going to change my life. And until I kind of surrender to who God is, um, then I cannot be transformed. And at the end of the day, when we talk about theology or attributes or Bible verses, at the end of the day, the goal is not just to get information about God, it's to know God. We believe, we have a mantra that the way human beings are changed is not through programs, but through the person of God and ultimately fully expressed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that's why we're calling it wild. And we're looking at the attributes of God. Now, the attribute I want to look at today is called the eternity of God or God is eternal. And the challenge that we're going to kind of look at in Psalm chapter 90 is the challenge of walking in light of God's eternity. Learning to walk in light of God's eternity. Now, when I first started thinking about God as eternal, I used to pray these prayers. And sometimes as a believer, you start praying prayers and you don't even know what you mean. Like, God, you are omniscient. You know, God, you are omnipotent. You don't even know what these, these words mean at first. You just say them because it sounds churchy and cool. And sometimes we say things like, God, you are eternal. God, you are the eternal God over all things. And for the longest time, I didn't even know what that meant. Because I thought it meant like, you know, the endless energizer bunny. Like, you know, God's always got strength. He has no beginning, no end. He goes from one moment to another without ever losing strength. It's true he has No beginning and no end. He's eternal. But I I never fully knew what it meant to say that God is eternal. And it turns out it's not about a successive moments in God or God being the energizer bunny. It turns out that really eternity is a way to describe God's mode of existence in contrast to our mode of existence. Our mode of existence is time. We are in this present moment. We have a past and we think about the future, but we don't know what it is. We have to move from one moment to another to experience life. God is eternal, which means his mode of existence is not limited by time. God has no limits with time. And so all time and all reality is before his eternity. Now, let me give you kind of a 
a definition from a book. I've never read this book fully because it's about this thick. It's by a guy by the name of Wayne Grudem. It's called Systematic Theology. But he has a really great definition of the eternity of God that I think is really important. Even though it's a really long sentence, I'll put it up on the board. But here's how he describes God's eternity. God's eternity may be defined as follows. God has no beginning, end, or succession of moments in his own being. And he sees all time equally vividly. Yet God sees events in time and acts in time. Now, that's wild. Everybody say wild. That's wild. God sees all moments, past, present, and future, equally vividly, presently in his own eternal being. And yet he's able to work in time and work um, and enter into time. That's wild. In fact, that's beyond our comprehension. Now, let me draw you a picture. You're like, I want a picture. Yay, St. Patty's Day. He's such a good artist. No, I'm not, no. But I thought, you know, I knew this would be a lull, you know, because we're talking about deep, you know, deep theology. That's when everybody's like, let me take a nap. You know what I mean? So I don't know why I did that. Okay. First of all, God is eternal. And what Wayne Grudem's definition says is it says that God's eternity is like this. There's the, our past or history, right? Then you've got, we'll put down the cross, Easter, Jesus died for our sins and defeated death, hallelujah, that happened in history. And then you've got our present, I know this is illegible, but you get the point. And then, it's really more about the arrows, and then you've got our future, and then you've got the coming eternal kingdom. Now, this is what's wild. What Wayne Grudem is saying is that God sees all of this right now equally vividly. It's not, it's not, it's not like God is like, I wonder what's going to happen in 10 years. Dude, it's already happened in his existence. Like, he's eternal. Like, and, and it's not like he looks back like 10 years, oh, 10 years ago, a decade ago, I should have gotten the 90s right. You know, like, no, 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 like, like it's, already happening in fact the past is happening in the eternal presence of God right now you're like that is wild it truly is and that's what Moses the man of God is saying about God's attribute of eternity he's saying look at it Psalm uh, chapter 90 he says in verse 2 before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That is, God has no beginning. Angels have a beginning. They were created. Animals have a beginning. They were created. You and I, we have a beginning. We were created. But God has no beginning and no end. But look at verse 4. This is, this is verse 4 is this. He says, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You're like, well, I haven't read much of the Old Testament, but I've read a little bit of the New Testament. So maybe you've read this verse from Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. It says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years are like one day. 
And of course, engineers are like, oh, how's that work out? Like a day and a th-? Like, that's not the point. The point is, is that everything is right before him. What for you and I is an experience of waiting or regret. We regret the past or we're waiting for the future. We hate the present. We're, we're stuck in a box of time that's squeezing us. And we have to experience that limitedness of time. God is not bound by time. That's a good place for an amen. Let me say it again. God is not bound by time. Amen. God is eternal. This is not an American God. This is not a European God. This is not a religious God. This is not a God who's limited by time. It's not a God who's waiting around for people to vote for him or or to decide if if they're going to like what he does and he's going to do what... No, no, no. God is eternal and his plan has already been fulfilled in his eternal being. God is eternal. That's why God himself says in Revelation chapter 1 verse 8, he says... I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, here it is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. Remember Moses is like, you want me to go and deliver the people of Egypt? How am I going to do that? What do I tell them? Who do I tell them that sent me? And he says, tell them, I am has sent you. What God was saying in his holy name, Yahweh, or for some of you, you might know it as Jehovah, what God was saying in his very name is, I am God. And that's why when Jesus said to the, to the Pharisees and the religious leaders, he said, before Abraham, I am, Jesus was saying, I am the eternal God. I'm eternal. I'm eternal. We ask ourselves a question. Well, I, don't, I mean, look, man, I didn't come to church to go to seminary. You know what I mean? You were the one, the knucklehead, that paid all the money for that. I didn't have to pay that money. I didn't come to church to go to seminary. So the question is, how do I connect the reality of God's eternity to the reality of my life? In other words, how do I walk in light of the eternity of God? And that's what Psalm 90 is all about. Psalm 90, Moses is rehearsing. This is how a human being begins to walk in their own time limitedness in light of the eternity of God. This is practically how I am choosing to walk in light of God's eternity. Let me give you a few things from Psalm 90 that helps us to know how we can walk in the eternity of God. The first thing is this, is that walk in light of God's eternity... By going to him as a refuge in the midst of your suffering. In the midst of your suffering, go to God in light of his eternity. Because you and I, we're experiencing present suffering. I don't know why I even tried to write it. That's what we're experiencing. We have present regret. The context of Psalm 90 is profound because... The context is Numbers chapter 20 in the Old Testament. Moses is an old man. He's about 126 years old. And and Numbers chapter 20 is one of the worst seasons in Moses' life. Three things happen in Numbers chapter 20. That's the background of, of Psalm 90. First of all, his sister Miriam dies. 
And Miriam, if, you, if you've ever watched Ten Commandments or whatever, Prince of Egypt, Miriam was the sister who like watched the basket as Moses was a baby in the basket and going through the river, you know what I mean? She walked along and she gave oversight. And, and, and Miriam was an important person in his life. The second thing that happened in Numbers chapter 20 is his brother Aaron died. And Aaron was always kind of the spokesman and kind of helped Moses because Mo- Moses had like a stuttering problem. And so he'd be like, uh, 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 and Aaron would be like, I got this, bro. And like would talk for him. You know what I mean? Aaron died. But the third thing that Numbers chapter 20 reveals is that Moses had great failure in his life. One of the greatest moments of his failure is in Numbers chapter 20 because he gets really mad at the people. And he takes a stick and he hits that stick in anger. And God judges Moses because of his anger. So Moses has got failure. Moses has got death. Moses is like many of us. Moses is going through suffering and confusion. He's going through loss. He's going through flaws. He's sinned. He's fallen short. He's experiencing this failure. He can't get things right. And if you and I were 126 years old, we'd probably be a little grumpy too. You know what I'm saying? So as he's dealing with this suffering, he says something in verse 1. He says, God, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Moses only wrote three songs that are recorded in the Bible. In two of those, he refers to God as his refuge, as his dwelling place. And what he's choosing to do in light of God's eternity is he's choosing to run to God as his refuge, as his dwelling place. And why? Because he... Because he, know, because, he, because he knows what all people know who walk in light of God's eternity. Even though we're experiencing present pain, God knows the end. And the end ends good. All things are being worked together for good. And part of what it means to run to God as our refuge is to trust God in the pain. It's to trust God because what's happening in our life, God knows what's happening, but he also knows the solution that's going to happen in his own good time. You and I are experiencing life one moment at a time, but God sees the end. And that's what Moses is doing. We were talking about it. Uh, Mark Friday was reminding me that you know, God's eternity, it's kind of like, you know, you're looking, you and I, we're, we're stuck to time and we're looking at a parade marching, marching by through a fence hole. And we're kind of looking at life one moment at a time. But God is above the parade. He sees the end from the beginning and he declares the end from the beginning. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, talks about, talks about the same parade, but he says, you and I are marching in the parade with the band, and sometimes the band sounds terrible, which can happen at a parade, and sometimes it sounds good, and sometimes, sometimes it's hot, sometimes it's cold, and we're going one step at a time with our band, and we're playing our big horn thing, you know what I mean? And we're going through life, blowing our horns, but guess who's on the balcony who oversees the whole thing? God. And when we suffer, we need that experience. When we're going through problems, we have to run to God like Moses is here in his grief and his failure. He's saying, I choose to trust God. He's my refuge because he's eternal. I choose to trust God. 
How do you trust? How do you go to God as your refuge? You listen to his voice. You stop talking every now and then. For me, it's like, stop complaining. Y'all know what I'm talking about? That's how I get. And start listening. In the midst of your suffering, God is speaking. And if we run to him in our storm and in our suffering, then our storm and our suffering will shape us. It won't sink us as I keep saying. And you know what? God's calling you. In his eternity, he's calling you to run to him, to rest in him. Jesus said, all who are weary and heavy laden, come to me. I will give you rest for your souls. I am humble. I am humble and loving. You come to me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I'm calling you by name. I can remember being a kid. When I was a kid, you could jump on your bicycle and go as far out as you wanted to. You know what I mean? And I had a Mongoose FS1 freestyle bike. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Had pegs on the front and pegs in the back. You know what I mean? I got on that bike. And I'd, I'd just go. And we went to this general store, and I, got a, I used to get pitsy sticks that were this tall. They were as tall as me. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Just pure sugar, man. You know what I mean? And I got a Coca-Cola Classic, and I got a king-size Snickers bars. Can I get a hallelujah? And I'd eat this, and you know what I mean? That shirt is off, riding, middle of summer in Oklahoma, 105 degrees outside, hot, sweating, getting into fights, laughing, Try not to abuse frogs. Can I get an amen? Like, like going down to the river, getting stinky, getting tired, getting hot, and then suddenly you realize you're dehydrated, you know what I mean? And it's the end of the day, and you're like, why do I feel terrible? I just had a Coca-Cola Classic and a Pixie Stick and a King Size Snicker Bar. That should be enough. But then a voice going out all across the neighborhood, carrying on the wind down to the river, my small mother, she's five foot tall, had the biggest voice you've ever heard before in your life. And she'd stand on the end of that porch and she'd go, Joshua! And I'd be like sweating and dehydrated and suffering and beat up by some kid. And I'd be like, I got to go home, you know, and I'd just run home. And as soon as I walked into the home, you got the aroma of spaghetti or hamburger helper sometimes. And you walk in, you go, I'm home. You clean yourself off and get a nice nutritious meal and actually drink water or milk. And you know, God is, in our suffering, he's calling us home. And his voice is carrying on the wind and it comes to us in our, in our suffering, in the heat of life, in the heat of the present world. And he's saying, I'm eternal, I'm calling you home to get you some perspective. I'm calling you home so that, so that you can trust in me again. How do we walk in light of God's eternity? In our suffering, we run to him as our refuge. But here's the second thing. In our mortality, we run to him for wisdom. Now, Moses seems to be pretty depressing. He keeps talking about death. He says in verse 3, you know, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. And then we pick it up in verse 7. He keeps talking about death. He keeps talking about mortality. He keeps talking about the fact that we're all going to die. And he says in verse 7, For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. 
For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So here it is. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Ultimately, this psalm is a contrast between God's nature and our nature. God is eternal. We are limited. God is righteous. We are unrighteous. Uh, God is holy. We are unholy. Uh, God God knows everything. We know very little. But the reason why Moses is making this contrast is not for purposes of lament or to be depressing. He's using the eternity of God as a contrast to our limitedness to bring about urgency in seeking God's wisdom for our limited life. He's saying, your life is pressed by 70, maybe 80 years, and, and, and in the press of time, if you don't seek the eternal wisdom of God, then you'll live a meaningless life. And the one thing we've gotten good at in our culture is trying to forget that we are going to die. In fact, we think people are a little strange when they focus on death. But the Bible brings up our mortality not to depress us, but to bring about urgency in seeking God. And those who remember that they're limited, that they're mortal, that life is short, are those who will seek wisdom from God, or they should. That's why if you, if you ask me, you're like, hey, Pastor Josh, would you rather preach at a wedding or preach at a funeral? I would rather preach at a funeral any day of the week because that's the one moment when people are like that casket that's that's me you go to a wedding man and people are like you know people got flask of whiskey in their coat and they're all ah, and they could care less about the preacher or the message or christianity is they're just thinking about the cake and the reception and the party and the dancing and the and the music and that's why ecclesiastes says it's good to go to the house of mourning because the living take it to heart The press of mortality presses in on our heart and we go, you know, what is the meaning of life and why am I here and what are the divine purposes? And Moses is saying, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Because people who don't number their days, including myself, I have days like that. You might be smart, you might have a lot of knowledge. You might have a lot of ability, but if you don't number your days, you can become real foolish real quick. I know a lot of smart people that are unwise people, and I've had significant seasons in my life where I spent all this money for seminary, I spent all this money for Bible college, I read all these books, and yet I've been very foolish It's my attitude or my words or the decisions I've made in my life. I've been very foolish. And it's a sad thing when smart people do foolish things. You think about, take Lori Laughlin. I mean, this, she is the queen. Y'all know who I'm talking about, right? And she cheated to get her kids into USC. I mean, how much more foolish can you be? Anyways, uh, USC, and then like parents are cheating like to put their kids at Texas. 
No, boo. That's foolish. But Lori Laughlin is the queen of Hallmark Christmas stories. Some of you women have been crying all week because they're going to take all those shows off. There's no more Christmas stories on Hallmark. Lori Laughlin cheated to get her daughter into USC, spent $500,000 to cheat to get her kid into a college, USC of all places. How foolish can you be? That's a person that forgets that life doesn't last forever. That's a person that, that imagines with their money and their power and their influence that they can cut corners and do that. But here's the thing. I can't judge Lori Laughlin at the end of the day. Because you know what? If I had millions and millions of dollars and if I were powerful and if I had influence with people, I've got four daughters. I want to give those girls everything they want. Can I get a hallelujah? That's why I praise God I'm so poor so that they won't be spoiled and like have a YouTube channel where they go, you know, and like, you know, and they're like, they're like, I don't go to school classes. I go to parties at USC, you know, and they're all caked up, man. I don't want the A team acting like that. It's foolish people because their money and their power is doing to them what it might do to us if we had it. Make us think that we're not mortal, that life is not short. The roots of a sick society can be found in each one of our hearts. And we all do in our own life in maybe a smaller way, a less, you know, a less scandalous way that doesn't hit the news. But we all do in, in various ways foolish things because we're not walking in our mortality. We think it's going to last forever. So we want our club church and our spiritual club. And let's go to the cafe and sit around and like, you know, have our Christian club, you know, and all this stuff. We all act foolish and Moses is saying God teach us to number our days you're eternal and in light of your eternity I'm seeing how small my life is so help me to number each day for your glory help me to seek your wisdom and what kind of wisdom is Moses saying we should seek from God a wisdom that says a selfless life is better than a selfish life a wisdom that says a generous life is better than a greedy life a wisdom that says that, that asking God for a full life is far more important than asking God for a long life. Jim Elliott, in his journal, he's a modern Christian martyr who died taking the gospel uh, to, to South America. And one of the things he said in his journal is, Lord Jesus, don't give me a long life. Give me a full life like your life was full. As a result, his legacy has a lasting legacy. He has a fuller life in light of eternity than some people who live to be 103, 104 years old. That's wisdom. God, I'm here for a moment. My life is a mist. My life is a vapor. My life is going to come and it's going to go. I came into this world naked. I'm going to go out of this world with nothing to tell. I'm not taking any of this with me. And so help me to live in light of your eternity. Let your mortality lead you to wisdom from God. That's how you walk in light of God's eternity. But here's the final thing. Not only should we seek God as our refuge in suffering, and should we seek God's wisdom in our mortality, but we should seek God's grace in our sin. How do we walk in light of God's eternity? We seek God's grace in our sin. Now look at what he says. I'm going to back up. He says some pretty provocative things here. He says, 
in Psalm 90, verses 5 and following, he begins to emphasize, no, verses 7 and following, he, be, no, look at, sorry, like, isn't this your second time through the sermon? You still don't know it? My gosh, man, where did you go to seminary? Anyways, Psalm chapter 90, verse 3, <laughs> oh my gosh. He says this, he says, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. Now, in the Hebrew language, the word for man is the same word for Adam. So some translations have it, return, O children of Adam. He's connecting us to our ultimate father, who is Adam, Adam and his failure and his sin. Then he goes on to say, okay, now skip down to verse 7, Psalm 90, verse 7. Listen to this language. This is provocative. Nobody talks like this anymore. He says, for we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath, We bring our years to an end like a sigh. And then look at verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? In other words, he's saying, here's what he's saying. He's saying human beings are unwilling to connect their mortality to their sinfulness. Because because we don't fear God, we don't think about death as like, man, the reason why we die is because we've rebelled against God. Nobody does this. Nobody says the reason why human beings are dying is because humanity is under the wrath of God. Humanity is under the judgment of God. The reason why our life is so limited is because God has judged our rebellion and he's judged our rebellion in Adam and Eve. Original sin is the doorway by which death came to all of humanity. And the reason why I'm going to die and the reason why you're going to die is because we were there in original sin. If, now, here's the crazy thing. You're like, this is wild. I know, I'm getting wild. Here's the crazy thing. The Bible goes on to say in the book of Romans, it says that if there had been no other sin than the sin of Adam and Eve, we would all be judged on that one original sin. If you and I had never sinned afterwards, it was enough to poison our relationship with God. Humanity is in rebellion against God, and therefore humanity is under the wrath of God. And to walk in light of God's eternity is to begin to confess these things and admit these things because the same thing that led to our death is the same thing that leads to our salvation, sin. I confess my sin. I admit I admit that Adam is alive and well in me. I am a child of Adam and Eve. I'm running from God. I'm in outright rebellion against God. And that's what Moses is saying. But watch what Moses does. He says, wait a minute. But there's something greater than human sin. And you know what's greater than human sin? It's God's grace. It's God's grace. And where we sin, God's love can overwhelm our sin and can deconstruct the Adam in us and can give us new life. And so Moses says in verse 13, watch this. Woo! Woo, I'm even more fired up this service than last service. He says, listen to what Moses says. He says, return, O Lord. How long? Have 
pity on your servants, that is, have mercy. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor, everybody say favor. Let the favor, that is the grace of God. I don't know why I'm jumping. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. You know what he's saying? He's saying, oh, so good. He's saying, he's saying our life before we met God is verses 1 through 11, death, foolishness, wrath, judgment, condemnation. But then Jesus came and gives us grace and gives us a new morning, a new day, a new life, satisfaction, pity, favor, steadfast love. And not only that, Moses is saying what Paul would say in the book of Romans in the New Testament. He's saying that where sin abounds, the grace of God superabounds, and that God's grace can restore to us and bring us more abundance in the goodness of God than all of our evil ever brought in our affliction. You know what grace is? You're like, what's the grace of God? It's the great exchange. The grace of God is the great reversal. The grace of God is, I give God my past I give God my present weaknesses. I give God my sin. And he gives me his eternal righteousness. He gives me his eternal life. He begins to pour into my heart his very life. Moses is claiming a covenant that God had given to him in Deuteronomy. God had made a covenant with Moses. Moses, a greater prophet than you is going to come. A greater leader is going to come. And he's going to lead a greater liberation than what you're experiencing from Egypt. A far greater moment of exodus is going to happen through this prophet. And that's why Moses said, how long, Lord? When is this one going to come to solve our sin problem? When is this one going to come and give us a new morning and a new day? How long, Lord? And you and I... We get the benefit of post-resurrection and looking back at Psalm 90 and said, he came. Jesus came. The greater Moses. And to walk in light of eternity is to seek the grace of God in our sin through the greater than Moses who is Jesus Christ. You see, Galatians says, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 Paul says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That even though God is above time, he can enter into time. Can I get an amen? He can work in time. And he sent at the right time his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself said in the context where he's talking about Moses and bread from heaven and and he's describing himself as the greater than Moses. He says in John chapter six, verse 40, for this is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up. 
on the last day because our life is a box. Time. And on the last day through Jesus Christ, we're going to escape that box and we're going to go to the eternal kingdom. And the eternity, the walk in light of God's eternity is to walk in the truth of that. To walk in light of eternal life through Jesus Christ. Like, how can I find meaning in a meaningless world? How can I find healing in a, in a, in a hurtful world? There is an escape, and his name is Jesus Christ. And how can I find forgiveness in my failure through Jesus? Now, one other point on this, because the grace of God is not just to, to stop with us, but to spread through us. And so what I want you to see about Moses is he's a great, he's a great missionary. Look at verses 16 and 17, and then I'll be done. He says, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power, watch this, to their children... Let the favor of the Lord be upon us. Notice he's not saying me. I'm a consumer Christian. No, no, no. He's like, he's talking about let the favor of the Lord God not only on me but on all of us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. And what Moses is saying is, Moses is saying I'm dying. I'm 126 years old. I'm about to march up a mountain called Mount Nebo. I'm going to sit crisscross applesauce and I'm going to look over the land and I'm going to see the promised land and I'm not going in there because of my anger. God's judged me. I'm not going in. But now establish my work so that my work won't stop with me but will spread to the next generation. That this message of God's eternity and his grace and his love and his gospel would go to the next generation, would go to more people, would spread. Moses is saying that the way to walk in light of God's eternity is to be a missionary for God, to live for God's purposes, to live for God's glory, and to say it's no longer about me, it's about God. I'm going to glorify God. I'm a magnifying glass that makes God bigger to people who don't think he's very big right now. I want the next generation to hear about Jesus. Moses is an evangelist. He's not thinking about himself anymore. And that's what's so great about God's grace. We stop thinking about ourselves. And we start thinking about other people and how we can serve them. How we can reach them. How we can pray for them. How do I walk in light of God's eternity? I live on mission. God established the work of my hands, not for my own house and prosperity. And I'm going to get a big car and a big house in my Christian, American Christian thing. You know, I'm going to get a promotion at work. No, 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 stupid. That's so dumb. That's so, that's so like limited. That's so prosperity. I got to have perfect health. I don't, I just, man, that cap. I'm fired up. I'm not mad at you. I'm just talking out loud but it's so dumb to live in this stupid little box without the eternal God and to act like somehow we can find meaning there dude we got to live for eternal purposes we got to lay up some treasure in the kingdom of God oh man how do I walk okay I gotta stop how do I walk in light of God's eternity you know what you see what Moses is doing He's saying, God, in an insecure world, give us security. God, in a foolish world, give us wisdom. 
And God, in a sinful, broken world of death and decay, give us new life in the light of your love. Satisfy us with a new day of salvation and joy in your presence. That is how you walk in light of God's eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. My words are not perfect. Sometimes they're not even edifying, but your word is perfect. What a good word we have from Psalm 90. Fill our hearts with your love. Some of us were suffering and it's easy for me to preach about seeking you as a refuge in the midst of suffering. It's easy to preach and to say these things at church, but it's much more difficult for the person that's suffering. And if there's someone here who feels like their suffering is unbearable, maybe meet them where they're at until they can seek you as a refuge. Be their home where they're at. Meet them where they're at. God, others of us, we're not suffering, but maybe we're being foolish. Maybe we're, maybe our minds aren't quite thinking right, so give us wisdom for the days that you give to us. Help us to seek that selfless life over a selfish life, that generous life over a greedy life. Help us, help us to seek a full life and not be so worried about whether it's long or not. And God, others of us, maybe we don't even know you yet and we're trying to figure out how to start a relationship with you. Give us the grace to show us Jesus, the greater than Moses, Savior and Liberator. Help us to see that he meets us on the cross and he gives us power in his resurrection and that anyone who finds Christ finds new life. And as a church, God, make us missionaries. Even at our workplace, help us to creatively and imaginatively learn how to pray and to do work in a way that we're worshiping you, to integrate our faith in our work to integrate our testimony in our neighborhood, to integrate our relationship with you into normal conversations with others as we're sharing how you're working in our life. Help us to be missionaries. So Lord, I pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.